How's it going, everyone? I'm Hannah Syriac, your host, and welcome to Fair Voice. Fair Voice is affiliated with Fair Mormon, but the opinions expressed here do not necessarily represent the opinions of Fair Mormon, the organization, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So today is a really great episode. Today we interview Chris Blythe. So Chris Blythe is over at the Maxwell Institute, and he recently wrote a book that I really like, and it's called The Terrible Revolution. This book is amazing, and I strongly recommend that you read it, but let's just dive right into this interview today. Awesome. So today we're going to talk about the book, The Terrible Revolution. And the first question I wanted to ask is, did you anticipate this book to come out in such a tumultuous time? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Not at all, right? This has been... uh... I I wrote my advisor the other day, and I and uh, my uh, Oxford was surprised it was selling so many copies. You know, they priced it kind of expensive, and uh, they asked if I was doing some sort of special publicity that they wasn't they weren't aware of. And I wrote my advisor, and I said, uh, "It's obviously because we're in the apocalypse, right? That's why this is selling so well." Um, but no, I definitely didn't think. I I I'm not a prophet, so I wasn't able to know that this would happen. Um, I actually think, uh, you know, it's such a, it's such an important part of Latter-day Saint culture. And uh, so I was really just focused on that end. And it's uh, unfortunately horrifying events that have led to, you know, interest into the book, which makes me feel awful. So I've had multiple producers call me this week um, wanting to write about not just COVID, right, but about... Um, the things with Chad Daybell happening in Idaho. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really dark things. Yeah. So kind of to lay some groundwork so that our viewers can understand what we're talking about. Can you define apocalypse and talk a bit about the tradition of apocalypse within Christianity, specifically within LDS theology? Yeah. Um, you know, apocalyptic is... Uh, Usually when scholars write about Latter-day Saint ideas of the last days, um, Grant Underwood, the scholar, kind of set us into a trajectory where most people just talk, call it millenarian. Mm-hmm. And I picked apocalyptic for a couple different reasons. Um, one, there's this old tradition of textual works that we call apocalyptic. Um, these are works like the Book of Revelation, um, in which a figure is often uh, shown the events of the future, shown events in heaven, sometimes in hell, and, uh, and has walked through events uh, with the help of, a, of an angel. Um, I think this is a fascinating literary idea. I wanted readers to have that in their mind because I'm going to talk about in the book all sorts of, um, not just Joseph Smith's revelations or the Book of Mormon, but I'm also going to talk about revelations from different Latter-day Saint individuals that put forth on their ideas and in visions or fictional visions. And they all followed that same literary tradition that they were familiar with from their Christian backgrounds. Um, I also chose it because of the sort of popular connotations of apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic, right? Um, So everybody today has uh, images in their mind. It's not, you know, as a Latter-day Saint, I focus much more on this sort of optimistic arrival of the Savior, and uh, the world's going to be a wonderful, peaceful place. Uh, we'll learn war no more. Um, but there's this period before that, 
which I think is really classified in that word apocalyptic, so destructions. I often warn people that when I talk about the end of the world, and sometimes I even use that language, Latter-day Saints never mean the literal end of the world, right? Yeah. We mean a transition, a period in which uh, the, the oppressed, those that uh, perhaps have information from Heavenly Father can, you know, this, this group, this body of believers who have not been at the leaders of the world are going to transition. So Jesus is going to come back and lead the world himself. Um, very different than a sort of, you know, if you're thinking of Apocalypse and you think of the movie Armageddon or uh, Deep Impact, or I, I have a terrible habit of mentioning movies from the 90s, and I always think uh, <laughs> everybody's aware of them. But these movies where asteroids hit the Earth and the whole Earth explodes, um, it's not like that in this material. So that's not apocalypse, but that sort of transition brought about by God that includes disasters for sure. And civil unrest and disease and so on. And that is what I'm talking about when I talk about apocalyptic. Yeah. And I think you illustrated it quite well when you were talking about the book of Mormon as apocalyptic and you talk about these themes of destruction and renewal. Can you expound upon how the book of Mormon acts as a way to segue into American apocalypses? Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, when I converged to the church, the first thing I read, the first book of Nephi, the week after I got the Book of Mormon, and I was so excited about this book because I got to Nephi's vision, you know, the, his vision in response to Lehi's dream. And I realized that throughout it, it was about the book of Revelation. This was Le, uh, Nephi and Lehi uh, seeing how, the, how these last day's events would happen. And not just that, but seeing how they would happen uh, in part in the American continent. This, the Book of Mormon takes the events that many Christians would be familiar with, uh, War of Armageddon, all sorts of these ideas that people have read in Daniel, Ezekiel, the Book of Revelation, but assume that they have something to do mainly with the old world. And it situates it at least in part, and importantly, just in part, in the new world. And so I think uh, it's fascinating. So Joseph Smith introduces the Book of Mormon and other revelations relating to these ideas. And uh, it resonates with a lot of Americans, actually, because a lot of Americans have wondered what, what is this nation that means so much to us have to do with those events. It must have something to do with Providence. Uh, for the history of the world, we, at least Christians, weren't aware of this new world and then discovered it. So as you might know, Columbus immediately has that question. What does this new world have to do with prophecy? Yeah, and I think that's a really good way of putting it too. And one thing that I liked that you did throughout this book is you, I, I saw you relating a lot back to Zion um, and ideas about how Zion represents multiple different apocalypse. Um, what, what would you have to say about that idea? Oh, I think that's right. Um, you know, throughout the Book of Mormon, and other revelations and the histories that Joseph Smith reveals um, is always that quest to build Zion. Um, and we have various moments that we can pinpoint the city of Enoch. Here's a people, uh, when we pair that with the flood, we can see that the story is God's people building this city, um, building a witness to the world, and then the rest of the world kind of giving up. They're going down into to wickedness and so on. The world's destroyed, and then Zion becomes that community. We see the same thing happen 
um, in the Book of Mormon and Third Nephi. Um, and so I do. I think um, if I was going to look at, and I do look at Joseph's Revelations as a sort of whole, you go through these cycles. And that's a really important part to, to early Latter-day Saints who recognize we're going through these cycles and see themselves as part of it. Um, yeah. Builds on. I think that's a really good point. And could you expand on what you think the early saints' messianic expectations were? What do you think the early Latter-day Saints were expecting to happen in their lifetimes? Yes. Um, you know, importantly, I think Latter-day Saints, from, from Joseph, many Latter-day Saints wanted to believe that these events were very, very soon. And so we see church leaders, like they're doing today, often say, you know, there's a couple generations left. Like we are in the last days, um, but maybe not as close as some of you think. Um, and I think you see that with Joseph for sure. Um, but people were expecting, um, I think the Civil War prophecy, section 87, um, is one of the best single places to see what um, early Latter-day Saints expectations were. They loved the Constitution. They believed the United States was very important. However, they believed corruption in the United States, including slavery, was going to lead to division. Um, they believed that there'd be racial violence in their lifetimes, um, and they pinpointed that in things. They also believed um, they would face disease. Um, early Latter-day Saints often saw cholera as a major disease relating to the last days. Um, and they, they expect the nation to collapse. Part of their role, they believed, um, was to preserve the sort of core of American ideals wherever they went. Um, many people are familiar with the idea that the Constitution would hang by a thread. And sometimes people today think that, I don't know how we got to this, but some people think that was a sort of a myth, you know, was this really said at the time? This was a major belief that early Latter-day Saints had, that the nation would become corrupted and the Latter-day Saints would be a place of refuge for those that wanted to maintain those American ideals and also who would want to escape violence. Early Latter-day Saints were pacifists as much as they could be, right? We call them selective pacifists. Um, but they believed that... Um, things would, terrible things would happen in the world. And their job was to create a place that people could go to for refuge and uh, live in peace. And really, they believe that whether those coming were Latter-day Saints or not, there's this ideal that you see in all these early visions of Latter-day Saint men and women going out to the plains and helping people back in. And, you know, we know stories about that for Latter-day Saint converts, but often in this literature, it shows people fleeing violence, uh, you know, prophecies of violence in the East, people heading over the mountains and, and men and women being sort of saviors to them, helping them over um, and having peace on earth there. So I think those are the things they thought most about. And of course, part of it is they were worried about government persecution. And Latter-day Saints in the 19th century absolutely um, believed they were experiencing it at various times, whether it was the Utah War or whether it was the prosecution of polygamists in the 1880s um, or so on. Latter-day Saints were very much aware that uh, not everyone liked them, and so they were expecting persecution. 
Yeah, and that's actually a really great segue into my next question, which is about the relationship between the persecution and the martyrdom. I don't want to say the martyrdom complex, but the martyrdom ideas and how early saints formed their expectations. Yeah, I as I started reading this, I you know, I wasn't aware of how how rich this conversation was. I was aware of scenes you know, early Latter-day Saints placed a great deal of emphasis on this uh, this portion of John's revelation in the, in the book of Revelation in which John sees the martyrs and, you know, this is the, the scene in Revelation where the seals are being opened. And in the fifth seal, John sees martyrs underneath the altar in heaven. And these martyrs say they're praying for God to avenge them, right? Saying, look, let's finish up the earth. Let's get this going. Um, and God says, not yet. Um, there's more that'll join you. Right. Um, kind of a really scary scene. Right. Um, but early Latter-day Saints believed that martyrdom was part of last day's events. And so that they should expect it. Um, you know, one of the things I quote in there is this quote from Eliza R. Snow, where she's, where she kind of predicts this and says, Hey, this is going to happen. And another from Brigham Young, who, when they, the saints first get to Nauvoo says, Hey, you need to expect martyrdom and it's not over yet. Right. God is going to avenge our murderers. Um, wow. Um, this changes with Joseph's death. When Joseph dies, um, one of the things he says is that, you know, he goes as a lamb to the slaughter and he's dying for his people. Um, Samuel Brown, a great scholar, calls him in the early Latter-day Saint consciousness, he says he acts as like a secondary savior. Um, and I think in part he does that, um, you know, nothing like the savior, but in a sense, um, Brigham Young came to believe that because Joseph died, um, the saints themselves wouldn't have to face martyrdom in the same way. There's several quotes on that that I share. Um, where he says, you know, a great sacrifice has been made. And because of this, we're going to be able to escape and leave the nation and not have to experience some of the terrible things that we expected. Martyrdom is key in theology in the Book of Mormon, because when martyrdom happens, then God judges the nation. So there's always that secret combination shows up. The secret combination kills the prophets. And then God acts and judges that secret combination. So Latter-day Saints are expecting that to be part of the, the cycle. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that's one of the things that I really liked about your book is that you talked a lot about how there are these cycles that originate from the Book of Mormon and then obviously the Hebrew Bible that continue into present day. Um, what role do you think visionary culture has to play in these expectations in martyrdom and other things like that? The entire time I was reading your book, I kept thinking of the martyrdom of Polycarp um, and how that really acted as an influential point um, for early Christianity. And I just see a lot of parallels between a lot of the different commentaries like Amanda Wilcox's, et cetera. Oh, I think that that's a great comparison. Yeah, because that that martyrdom ideal and that sort of literature um, becomes really important to early Latter-day Saints. It weaves into all of the visionary material. You know, broadly, I think um, 
I think amongst early Latter-day Saints, we have this visionary literature that comes from Joseph and some part of the Bible and Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants. Um, and that's always a constant. When we get to Utah in particular, what, what visionary visions that might have come from everyday members and gained popularity amongst the saints, um, the role of that was to really, uh, I mean, the function of it was to uh, take these events, just like the Book of Mormon took events that people thought were in the old world and brought them to the new. Now, these, these other visionaries are taking events and localizing it to where they are. Um, you know, there's, you've read this, there's visions that place some of these events in Manti and some in Salt Lake and some in Canada and Mexico. Um, I think the important message among Latter-day Saints is that we're trying to, we, we live in sacred time and space and we're expecting these events to be not somewhere down the road in some other, some other person's foreign town, but right where we are. Yeah, I think that's a really good point is that because they're localized, it also kind of gives them this feeling of authority over like a feeling of authority and jurisdiction over a particular area. Just on a personal, what is your favorite localized prophecy? Oh, I love it. I think, uh, ooh, that is a good question. I really do like um, Newman Bulkley's vision. Newman Bulkley's vision is um, in Salt Lake. It is um, a beautiful event. So it's not beautiful in the beginning. There's all sorts of last day's events and there's an invasion on Salt Lake City from a, a bad army. And this army uh, builds up explosives to try to explode the temple and to, to hurt Latter-day Saints there. And uh, I love it because instead of the saints building up this big army, um, they turn to prayer. And so they pray and pray. And then with the help of uh, with the sort of blessings from the temple, they're able to thwart or God's able to thwart this sort of effort to attack them. And the great thing, you know, this is, this is like the, a wonderful fantasy as Joseph is resurrected and the savior appears and they meet in the Salt Lake temple to lead the saints back to Jackson County. So all of these events sort of just happen beautifully all together. And uh, yeah, I don't know if that's how it's going to happen, but it's a very beautiful idea. Yeah. I really like that too, especially because I think before that you talked a bit about how the temple kind of represents this apocalyptic space. Could you describe that thought process and how that can help inform the uh, vision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think always the temple is related to the last days among Latter-day Saints, right? Christ will appear in his temple. Isaiah two, we're, we're looking for this temple in the mountains. Um, you know, we have even even when Christ, Moses, Elijah, and Elijah, Elias appear in the Kirtland Temple, they're all relating to last day's events. So um, pretty powerful. In Nauvoo, it's made clear that the temple not only is important for our role of preparing the world for the second coming through vicarious ordinances, but also receiving this, it's also a place that can protect us. So... Um, right then, you know, the Navi temples completed, Brigham Young realizes that through the power of prayer, particularly prayer connected to the temple, prayer circles even, um, the saints are protected from their enemies. 
um, this sort of knowledge that they also see, um, I won't talk too much about this, but in the book, you'll see that uh, Latter-day Saints, initially when they build the temple, understand at some level that they're acting out the book of Revelation, right? This is the great concourse of people in white robes praying to the Father. And um, in any case, they do. They see there being protection in the temple and also um, really a refuge. And so from that point, Brigham Young is going to emphasize the importance of prayer. And you see that repeated in many visions like Bulkley's, that when bad things happen, it's not that the saints... I don't know of a single vision that says the saints are going to train and get guns, right? That's not the story of Latter-day Saints apocalypses. Um, the story is that they uh, devote themselves to prayer. They turn to the temple, and then as a community, they depend on God, and God leads them where they need to go um, to escape violence and escape disease and so on. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And what came to mind when you were talking was Jonathan Steele's little little prophecy. I think it was 1891 where he said, um, either 1891 or 1890, where he said that they would see Jesus in the temple. And when you were talking about following the will of God, one thing that came to mind for me personally is timing. And I feel like timing is the biggest thing with these prophecies. So can you talk a little bit about how the early day saints would respond to prophecies not happening in the time frames that they expected them to, as yes. happens to us today too. Absolutely. This is really, it's the thing that I've, uh, I've pondered. I think at one level, date setting has never been too important to Latter-day Saints. Um, it's usually, you know, church leaders have been pretty consistent in saying two generations off. Like, like, we're to know that we're in the last days, but we're not to, not to think it's tomorrow, right? Stay in the world. Uh, there's this great quote from Brigham in the book in which he says um, they've, they've gotten building the Salt Lake Temple underway. And W.W. Phelps comes to him and says, um, I think you're the guy that's going to lead us back to Jackson County. And Brigham Young gets really upset. He says, you know, why do you think it's me? He says, well, you're the prophet after Joseph. And I thought it was going to be Joseph before. And Brigham says, well, can it be the next guy? Why do you think it's me? And uh, he says that he actually believes that the saints will already have built the New Jerusalem temple within seven years. They'll already have gone back. However, he wants the saints to focus on building the Salt Lake temple, even though he doesn't think they're going to complete it in time. He says he wants them to focus on that. And if he points to how quick these things will happen, then they'll be distracted. Well, we know Brigham's wrong, right? This didn't happen right then, um, but we can see his sort of attitude. His hope is right now, but he wants the saints focused on that long trajectory. Um, so how do the saints respond in a moment like 1890, where many of them think this is going to be the date? I think what we see is that they come up with different expl explanations on the ground. Some people will argue and say, well, maybe something spiritual did happen that year that we're not aware of. Sometimes they'll say uh, we weren't ready for it. Um, but often, I think the, the thing we can trace the most is that church leaders see these moments where members are getting overly excited, such as 1890 or even the year 2000. Um, and we see general conferences aimed at saying, guys, we're in the last days, but calm down. So we saw that in 1993. 
We saw that in 1890. Um, individual members, I mean, we don't have uh, a sort of a sort of uh, false prophecy fear, you know, that, that, that these things didn't come about. What are we going to do? Um, we felt that we had a sort of moment of that after Joseph's death, right? What do we do now that the prophets died? But I think we rarely have seen that amongst Latter-day Saints because there's almost always that uh, don't set dates. If you set dates, let's, let's not be totally sure. So even in 1890, you know, it's based on this prophecy of Joseph Smith who said, guys, don't think the second coming is going to happen in 1843 like the Millerites think, because I had a prophecy that it wasn't going to happen until at least when I'm 85. And he says, I don't know what that means, but I know that Jesus won't come back until I'm 85. And maybe that means I'll see him when I'm dead or something. But, um, And so his point, that even then, when he set this date up, that unfortunately led some saints to think 1890 was really the year, um, which would be when he turned 85. Joseph's real point was prepare for this stuff, but don't get, don't think it's tomorrow. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think for the average, you know, believing member, the, the prophecy is not happening in our lifetime doesn't really impact, impact us. But I want you to go a little bit into how the descendant and schismatic movements play into this, where um, I, I got the impression, at least, that a lot of the time these movements were built upon prophecies as well that were different from mainstream prophecies. Oh, that's good. I, you know, I think a lot of prophecies actually have been from people that thought, that, no, this is going to happen tomorrow, and we need to we need to prepare, right? We need to. The church isn't doing what needs to get done, so we need to come together and do this. So, you know, I uh, the horseshoe prophecy, the idea that the saints would flee south. This was a prophecy that became popular in the 1950s. The saints would flee south and then they would go in a loop, like a horseshoe, to go up to Jackson County, Missouri. Um, it was became popular in the 1950s, but we can show it going back in the 1880s. Anyways, uh, you know, a major group, the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times, based in Chihuahua, Mexico, is really going to be based as an attempt to fulfill this horseshoe prophecy. Um, another major group, the True and Living Church of Saints of the Last, the True and Living Church of Jesus Christ of Saints of the Last Days, um, based in Manti, Utah. Well, they thought that uh, the year 2000 was coming. This was going to be the year that the Savior returned for sure. And so they pulled together and thought they were fulfilling a number of prophecies um, right there in, in uh um, Manti. Manti is in what valley? Why is the name not coming to me? Anyways, go ahead. Yeah, I know. I just know it's not Utah Valley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of going off of that, one thing that a lot of people ask me about that I just don't know the answer to is how did these schismatic movements all come to be and about how many would you estimate there are and if you don't feel like you can answer that that's totally fine that was kind of tangential not exactly um, no absolutely it's you know i uh i am fascinated by uh the multiple paths of the latter-day saint tradition so one scholar stephen shields has estimated that there are about 400 different segments of the restoration that have existed at one time or another 
since 1830. Um, it's, you know, traditionally people have argued that most schism has been about who's the leader, right? Who's the right prophet? We believe that, you know, there's one uh, specific head of the church on earth. And so as Latter-day Saints, we definitely want to know who that person is. And so there is a major, um, you can see as different movements formed, that's often one of the major discussions. But I actually think most breakoffs of the church are about messianism, about a sort of a last days prophet figure whose goal is to answer some of these prophecies. And he shows up and he might claim to be uh, the Davidic servant, you know, this last days Davidic king, or he might claim to be uh, one like unto Moses who will lead the saints back to Jackson County, or he might claim that his job is to translate the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, you know, some major mission that he's presenting. And I think most of them are based on that idea. How do you think Joseph Smith kind of fills that mosaic vision? Yeah. Um, this idea of being one like unto Moses. Yeah. I think uh, at times Joseph does as a leader, you know, and as we look in the scriptures, this one like unto Moses has a couple different roles. Um, one is this literal bringing the saints to Zion. And Joseph Smith wasn't able to do that, at least where we were able to stay, right? Um, but Moses is also the prophet that spoke with the Lord face to face. And I think that's one of the most important ways that the scriptures point to Joseph as a Moses figure. He's, uh, he's actually, he's not a Joshua, right? He's, he's literally receiving prophecy from the Lord and hearing his voice and passing it to the people, which is, which I think is uh, pretty amazing. Um, you also see a section in uh, DNC 84, what used to be section three of the Doctrine and Covenants on Priesthood, and Moses's job is to bring the people face to face with God, right? Which Joseph makes his mission, right? It's not enough that he has experienced this himself. The, you know, his last great work is to bring out the temple ceremony, which is all about all of us having the opportunity to go to God face to face. Something that I really liked that you emphasized there and that you also emphasized in your book is the role of laity within prophecies. Could you talk a bit more about how it worked within a local community? I think we touched a bit about the localization of it, but um, could you talk about how that drove the church as a whole? Yeah. You know, one of the things I wanted to answer in writing this book is an idea that among Latter-day Saints, there's no longer a belief in spiritual gifts. Um, and I don't think that's true. In fact, I think while there's a performance of spiritual gifts, that the early saints did a lot more than modern day saints. I think in actuality, uh, we can trace many of those same experiences to the present day. Um, so amongst early saints, we have um, an encouragement of sharing visions and dreams. Um, you know, sometimes people are discouraged with specific ideas, but if someone stood up and shared a vision or a dream or spoke in the gift of tongues or gave a prophecy, uh, it wouldn't have been too controversial. Um, particularly if that vision went along with what we're being taught, right? If you said, I had a vision that says uh, we're going to move to Illinois, you know, whatever, then people would say, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Or I have a vision that the Savior's uh, return is going to be magnificent, you know, these sorts of things. Um, everybody would have uh, loved it, right? It might be printed in uh, the equivalent of the enzyme those days. 
Um, something happened around the turn of the century where we became really cautious about visions. And I think part of that is because some of our apocalyptic visions were aimed against the nation, right? The nation are, is the bad guys in some of these early visions. They're the ones that are going to corrupt the Constitution. They're the ones that are persecuting the saints. And I think we can trace that, that era where we're being encouraged not to share revelations at the same uh, the same way we were before. Instead, it's not, you know, prophets are never saying you're not going to have dreams or visions. They're saying, make sure to treat them like sacred things. Don't share them widely. Certainly remember something that dates all the way back to Joseph is that you, when you receive revelation, it's for yourself. Um, so don't go about sharing this widely. Um, in the early days, um, local visionaries were really common. I mean, they really were. Um, you can trace men and women in these communities in Cache Valley and southern Utah and Canada and Mexico. All of these women and men um, are, are known for sort of prophetic gifts and things. And you might, um, you know, you might even go visit the Lion House to talk to one of Brigham Young's wives about an issue. Or you might, uh, you know, you might have Amanda Wilcox in Salt Lake and you go visit her and talk to her. Um, I don't think that was much of a problem. There was always a concern about people trying to build up their own celebrity. That was always a concern. Um, but really, the problem came about, um, I, don't, I don't think it's, I, I, PR is a really kind of, that's, a, that's kind of dismissive, right? But I think it did. It was a concern over how we're being portrayed um, in America, when we're in a moment where we really don't want to be persecuted, we want to find a way to share the gospel broadly. And now in the early 20th century, we realize that if we hold back some of these specifics, we can share the other things a lot more broadly. Yeah, one thought that I had when you were talking about that is how you talk a little bit about how the apocalyptic prophecies kind of shifted to Mormon fun fundamentalism in the 20th century. And I, I was thinking about how isolation often is one of the th factors that drives a visionary culture and a prophetic culture. Um, I was thinking about the Essenes um, and I, with the Dead Sea Scrolls. But one question I wanted to ask you was, what was your favorite female prophecy or vision oh gosh there's there is no doubt i only mention her for one second but i have a whole book about her that i want to write and her name's lorona wilson lorona wilson is i think maybe the most prolific latter-day saint visionary other than joseph smith um i'm sure that's not true um but she has hundreds and hundreds of pages of of visions and um, experiences that she had. She was a dressmaker in Cache Valley, so up in Logan. She ran her own dressmaking college, and uh, one day she got blood poisoning, and she had to go to the hospital. She had this experience, um, and from there, she, 19, it's 1914, 1913, um, there she just has a slew of different experiences throughout her life, and I I just think it's so interesting because she's a pacifist and she's such a great, many, many experiences. But one of my favorite is that after World War I, um, she's so disturbed by war that she, um, 
she starts a woman's peace movement in Salt Lake City where various women are invited to join and they do. She gives these long speeches um, and her goal is to make it so uh, war, you know, to preach war no more. And so she has this peculiar idea that if maybe women volunteer to fight, we know this isn't true in the 21st century, but if women volunteer to fight, the world will have such a sort of a gentlemanly attitude that they'll refuse to go to war to hurt women. And so her job in this vision, the vision and the community she starts from it is that she's going to train these, these young women, college students um, to drill and so on. So if anything happens, they can go to war and ensure that no more men or women have to die because it'll just be the end of war. It's kind of like the idea of the children's crusade from, you know, the crusade period. But uh, she, uh, she shows up just a little bit. David O. McKay's, daughter married her son ma married her friend's son and her friend was her big supporter and so that made it so the church was great and maintained some of the some of letters that were written to to both of them so we can preserve her story but otherwise she's largely forgotten yeah i've i've noticed that a lot of these people are largely forgotten I'm grateful that you were able to kind of consolidate and bring them to light again. I think that's, I, I think if for anything, the, the footnotes are, buy the book for the footnotes. <laughs> Definitely. The footnotes are great. Um, sorry, the end notes. Um, I had a question about modern times. Um, I really liked what you had to say about Julie Rowe. And I thought that that was really fascinating. Could you go into it a little bit about who Julie Rowe is and the reception of her apocalyptic visions and her uh, quote i think you said spurious materials end quote um and what you think that has to say about the way that we receive uh, apocalyptic visions now um yeah you know the spurious materials part is what <laughs> what the institutes referred to right the, they had a document called spurious materials where they warned people <laughs> not to use different things and they added julie to that list um i think julie Rowe. It's really interesting. You know, she started publishing her books in 2014 and initially these were not, uh, I mean, they, they were pretty close to what we had in the past. I mean, this was a visionary. Uh, the difference was they were much longer and the largest difference with Julie is that she stuck around, right? This wasn't one experience that she shared or a handful. Um, instead, Julie kind of built up a celebrity and I think this is actually what's turned away most Latter-day Saints. Um, you know, initially she had uh, people bought her book and were interested in her, but Julie decided to publish uh, many books, um, a whole series of them. And then she'd held a lot of podcasts and she'd go around and give presentations. And then she'd get involved in energy work and charge some money to do energy work with her. And I think all of those things began to turn people off. Um, from Julie Rowe. And so in the book, I try to compare her with another visionary uh, who's also gained a large audience in the current era. His name's Spencer. Um, he's actually an anonymous individual who wrote his one experience. Um, and he had a friend, this John Pontius, this author, who wrote down his experience. And Spencer has never come out and said who he is or anything else. Um, but he shared this experience and then he didn't build any personal celebrity. And I think Latter-day Saints are actually a lot more comfortable with that. Now, in the case of Julie Rowe, uh, it became more, 
right? So initially it's just the story of the last days. And then she begins teaching ideas like reincarnation, uh, sort of exorcism, um, uh, energy work, this, uh, you know, uh, energy healing. Uh, if your listeners will be familiar with that, I don't know, but the idea of a sort of Reiki um, that you mm. could go to someone and say, I've been having this emotional problem, or even I have this physical problem, um, and they would um, run their hands over your body and maybe say say things, and the, and other parts of a sort of ceremony with the goal of removing this ailment from you, and that would become really important to Julie. So ultimately, after I wrote the book, Julie had her last bit of controversy where she's actually excommunicated from the church for not for her last day's beliefs, but through her other beliefs about energy work and um, refusing to budge on that end. So pretty fascinating moments. I, it's, it's difficult, right? When you write about these people, I think many, many of them are very, very sincere. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, I think, I think they're sincere. And um, I also think members, leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are also very, very sincere. And it creates particularly when people don't follow that sort of guidance of keeping their visions to family circles or to, to smaller circles. Um, you see that conflict happen and Julie's the, the latest example. And unfortunately, like when we talked about this true and living church, um, it has in it the making of a, of a schism. It's true. I think that's a really good point. Um, where do you think, we're going to go from here in terms of visionaries because one thing that i noticed i don't know if you saw the handbook changes mm. um but i thought that that was really fascinating um i believe they did explicitly say energy healing um if i'm not mistaken right like alternative healing something yeah something like specifically energy healing so i've i've been very interested in to see how people are going to react to that because it is you know there's this sort of alternative some church members, a, a decent percentage of church members, maybe that's 4%, who knows, um, or two, but uh, have become very interested in energy work um, and some ideas that were really part of new age belief systems. Um, and so, yeah, what happens when church leaders speak out and say, no, really, I know you don't consider this a religious idea you have over here, or maybe it's kind of religious, but you think it's sort of it's sort of the same as like uh, knowing how to navigate a boat or something, but, but, you know, there is an issue with this. Um, what do people do in those cases? And I think largely we're going to find out that this is what I imagine is that most individuals who are interested in these things will become less interested very quickly, except some of them, particularly those who are practitioners of it are going to double down. Um, it's fascinating. And you can see some of those practitioners um, have left the movement even in the past couple of years um, saying, hey, maybe that was something we shouldn't have been involved in. It's interesting to see. Yeah, I agree. Um, and the question that I wanted to close on was, how do you think the writing style of these prophecies has changed over time? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. I think initially the writing style is, uh, you know, I think, I don't think I make this point in the book, but I will someday. I think uh, Latter-day Saints are reading a lot of uh, John Bunyan, you know, this, this great author 
who is writing sort of fictional parables for Christian life, very popular, or the Book of the Martyrs, these sort of Christian books that aren't necessarily written in biblical language, but have all those major themes and are written certainly very formally and first-person accounts and so on. Um, I, I think that's really the style we see early on. And then in our day, we see much longer books. And whether I would say the writing styles change, I think it has. I think we've been influenced by um, near-death experience visionary literature. And we've been influenced by um, sort of broader non-Latter-day Saint visionary literature. So um, we're, we're moving, it's, it's a little unique today. I think it's also possible that some of our ideas in most of these cases aren't the sort of core ideas. They include the core ideas, but they're also moving in, with some of these visionaries in sort of evangelical directions. So the Mark of the Beast never shows up in 19th century discussions um, as an economic thing, you know, as something that people are going to insert into your body. It just doesn't show up. No prophets are concerned about the sort of idea of an actual Mark of the Beast. However, if you read 20th century, into the 20th century literature, up till now, the Mark of the Beast is really a prominent idea. And so I think Latter-day Saint visionaries and writers are very influenced by popular culture of today, as well as evangelical writings or Pentecostal writings. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Well, thank you for coming on to talk about your book. It's called The Terrible Revolution. If someone would like to buy it, where could they find it? You know, um, Amazon.com, um, Oxford University Press right now has a sale. If anyone's interested, you need a discount code. I don't know if your listeners will get to it in time. I don't know when it ends, but the discount code is AAFLYG6. Okay, that is AAFLYG6. That's right. Awesome. And, and you know, one of the best ways, if there's any people connected with BYU, is you can, uh, you can check it out through Oxford online and it's free that way. Thank you for tuning in to Fair Voice today. I am Hannah Sirak, your host. I want to give you a little bit of a preview of what is to come and also encourage you to download the 2020 Fair Mormon Conference and email me. So we got some good stuff coming. So our Sunday special this week will be on polygamy. So please watch out for that. Should be very fascinating. We're going to have a conversation about how to approach polygamy um, as a believing member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, next week, we are interviewing Robert Boylan about Mariology, which should be a fantastic thing that we're going to do. Please remember to go on to the 2020 Fair Mormon Conference and to download it. You can pay $59.95 until September 1st. And then after September 1st, it'll be $29.95. So please make sure to go download the Fair Mormon Conference. We would love to have you listen to it. So please do that right now. The The talks were really great. I liked a lot of them. It would totally be worth your time. If you have any questions or concerns about the show, please email hseariac at fairmormon.org. If you want to pitch topics, anything like that, let me know and let's talk. Thanks again for listening to Fair Voice and I hope you have a fantastic day.